Welcome to the DTB podcast for September 2022, volume 60, number nine. My name's David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about September's uh, DTB. But before we get to the content and the articles, I just wanted to highlight a document that appeared, I think, by email uh, this week from the National Audit Office. Um, and it describes the costs associated with the Department of Health and Social Care and the NHS in England over the last couple of years. Uh, it gives a, a very top level overview of the department and the NHS and its various parts. But particularly interesting, it shows where the, shows where the money goes. Um, 2020-21, it spent £193 billion, pounds, um, interestingly pre-pandemic. Uh, the budget was around £150 million, so it just shows the effect of the pandemic. Uh, and of that £193 billion, £146 billion went to NHS England. And I suppose the bits that interested me, and I'll come to you in a moment, James, see which bits fascinated you, was the 11 billion spent on prescribing and pharmaceuticals. Uh, so that's 8% of NHS spend. And interestingly, that was more than it spends on GP primary care services. Um, a couple of other figures that caught my eye was the breakdown of pandemic expenditure and the eye-watering amounts on test and trace and PPE, 13 billion each. Um, and then at the end, there's a good section on the challenges facing the health system. But James, what did you make of it? Yeah, do you know, I really like this. It's a very well presented, beautifully drawn out uh, article. Really, honestly, this is, this is worth downloading. Anyone interested in the health service or in the pandemic that we've been through, this is a really lovely Lovely schematic, nice diagrams, really easy to see. And as you say, just some fascinating numbers are always fascinating. You know, the fact, as you say, that more was spent on test and trace than GP and dental services put together. And the fact that actually they'd budgeted twice as much for test and trace than they actually spent. They'd budgeted £23 billion for it. Um, fascinating. The other thing I liked is they do a um, overview of the department's response to COVID-19 and an overview of the key dates and the department's response to things. And that's a fascinating historical couple of pages, just detailing from you know the 31st of January 2020 with the first confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the UK to the gatherings above six banned in England on the 14th of September in 2020, when primary and secondary schools returned to work on the 8th of March, 2021. You know, it's all there and it's, it's fascinating because you, you forget it all, don't you? So yeah, really interesting. Um, one of those, it's almost a sort of coffee table, um, if you could get it bound, a coffee table document to just peruse. Fascinating stuff. And uh, some also some interesting comparisons with workforce uh, compared to the rest of the world. Lovely schematic pointing out that there are only 2.4 beds per thousand population in the UK compared to three times that in Germany, four, five, almost six times that in Japan, and also looking at nurses per thousand population and doctors. Lots to look at. Great article. I loved it. And the, I mean, the, yes, the slightly depressing thing at the end, as you say, with the, with the comparisons and give it an idea of if it feels difficult in the NHS, well, that's probably probably why. Uh, the other thing I liked about it was that it actually describes quite nicely the current structure of uh, department, its responsibilities, what fits into 
local authorities, what fits into the NHS. Uh, like all these things, read it now because it'll probably change quite soon. But those those sort of that breakdown of um, the different parts of the health environment are quite useful I think particularly for me if somebody who kind of sits on the outside looking in so if you want to find it it's the National Audit Office Departmental Overview 2021 Department of Health and Social Care published in August 22. Yeah great okay uh, on to the issue let's begin with uh, the editorial you've James written about uh, some recent nice guidance on the management of gout uh, what did you make of it this was yeah it was just very timely there were two things that struck me reading around just in June time one was a Lancet paper that came out uh, a little early I think in May where um, the author's compared the management of gout in the UK before and after publication of the 2016 European and British guidelines on the management of gout. And this is a, a, a good paper in the sense that they used CPRD, that's primary care general practice data, to look at the management of gout and look at how many people, for example, who had an episode of gout then ended up taking urate lowering drugs such as allopurinol. And what they found was that in 2020, only a third of people who'd had gout started allopurinol or similar like Febuxostat, and only a third reached the target they set in those guidelines of 360 uh, micromoles per litre. And it just struck me that, first of all, actually, it's quite impressive. That was in the middle of the pandemic. Um, but that was quite interesting. But also then we have NICE comes out with its new guidance uh, in June, NG219, if you're interested. Uh, and I just got cross with it because the great thing about guidance is very often not actually what they suggest you do, but understanding why they're suggesting you do what you do. Because what they've done, hopefully, is done a lot of work looking at all the evidence around and actually giving you some understanding of why they suggest what you should do. And what was really disappointing about this guidance is most of the important stuff, the stuff that actually the Lancet paper was suggesting is being done badly by general practice, actually is all very, very uh, evidence light and is mostly based on uh, in basically on expert opinion. So the decision around suggesting that everyone who has an episode of gout should have urate lowering treatment is based purely on expert opinion. The fact that they've got a target of 360 or 300 if you have TOFI or are still getting flares is based on expert opinion. You know, the, the actual evidence base for the management of gout and the evidence base which we've been criticised for, for failing is based on expert opinion. And it left me thinking, well, you know, are the experts managing gout? Um, because I, I think the concept for me, and I think for a lot of people, um, clinical pharmacists and, and other clinicians managing this condition, is that it's very difficult to tell a patient who's had one episode of gout and probably got it perhaps when they'd been playing tennis all day or being out just in the park getting really hot and dehydrated and they get an episode of gout and you say, well, I'm, I think you should have medication for the rest of your life. They look at you as if you're mad i just you know i just think that this guidance is out of step with management there was nothing about lifestyle what was odd they said there was no evidence for it well there was no evidence for these other things but they managed to come to an expert <laughs> decision about that um nothing about lifestyle um uh 
So really sort of plus de change really with gout. Um, it feels like it's not a very helpful guidance. And the one sort of area where they said, that, well, look, you know, we can demonstrate that there's actually economic modeling that suggests it's cost effective to treat more people for gout actually failed to include the cost of clinician time in doing that and keeping people to target. So I just felt that really wasn't a very good bit of evidence either. So I was disappointed, disappointed cave. <laughs> but you've got it out of your system. I have, I have, thank you. The, the Lancet papers irritated me slightly because when, when I went back and had a, had a look at it and, and it was highly critical of, of people for failing to reach a target that had been set by a group of experts, as you say, rather than ever, because I think both sets of guidelines that they looked at, which I think were published in, I think, 2016 and 2017, the European and the British guidelines, both said that everyone should be on or offered ULT following an episode of, of gout and treated to target, but again, didn't really give the evidence base for it. As you know, as you've pointed out, perhaps that still isn't much. But also, I mean, I think there's the arrogance of publishing a guidance in a journal which is not seen by anyone managing gout usually, and expecting us to go searching for it and find it. I mean, I mean, I just, I just find it unbelievable. And then to criticise. Um, GP's management in 2020 when, I mean, locally, uh, our phlebotomy service just stopped working. We could not get any blood tests done. So the idea that we could start patients on allopurinol um, with no ability to monitor it is just a nonsense. So actually, I'm quite impressed that third of people were actually started on it because if our local area is anything to go by in 2020, it was very hard to manage patients um, who required monitoring. So Yes. I mean, a just really interesting case of where I think it's so important that we get more primary care. And by that, I mean nurses, doctors, pharmacists working in research and working for NICE because they seem to sometimes just miss the ball completely. And the, the other point which Guideline did pick up, which is about prioritising, so if we are targeting people for active intervention early on, it did pick up those people um, who it prioritised. The difficulty again was that some of those groups, people with renal failure or with renal impairment, uh, it didn't actually tell you how to practically manage the drugs that you would want to use in, in both that group and people with multiple uh, comorbidities. Exactly right. I mean, I think the areas where, you know, I would have really loved some further help would be in exactly that, the multiple comorbidities. I mean, the problem with, with gout, as it seems to me, is it's one of those sort of hangers-on that hooks onto patients with ischemic heart disease, hypertension, diabetes, obesity. Uh, and, and these are people who are now attracting drugs like old sticky toffee and the bottom of your car attracts you know, fluff. And I, and I just think that if you're going to recommend that these patients should all be taking this, you need to have a really good idea of the guidance that then demonstrates how you do that. And when you stop doing it, because I think, you know, we're now getting patients in their 80s and 90s on so many drugs. And uh, if you're going to have a guidance that suggests you start something, we need guidance to suggest how you stop as well. And in this particular case of, you know, a and it's not nice's fault there's not much evidence out there you know if, if the evidence isn't there there's not a lot you can do to, to con conjure it up but where there is a perhaps a paucity of evidence unless you go back and look at the discussion uh, and the background documents i don't think you pick up from the summary of the guidance 
the you know the degree to which the evidence is uncertain i don't think in the statements it makes it says this is based on you know limited evidence i think they're all given as as statements of fact but without a, any notion of, of of the strength of that recommendation totally right that's always been my criticism you never know how paper thin the evidence is you know sometimes there's evidence based on hard thick 10 foot walls of evidence and other bits are based on tissue paper that you could poke your finger through and it's interesting that the american college of physicians have a very different approach to gout they suggest you treat to avoid symptoms they don't have a target as such and you know you just think i just wonder whether nice were too influenced by the european and british previous guidance and felt they had to follow them anyway in interesting but i'd say i think um, a, a just a missed opportunity, really. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, let's move on to, we've got a couple of uh, our select items we wanted to talk about this month. Uh, the first one is on metformin. It's based on a safety update, drug safety update from the MHRA, talking about metformin and vitamin B12. What does it cover? Yeah, so this is just a reminder that the bigger the dose of metformin, the longer a patient takes it, all increase the risk of patients developing B12 deficiency and that's further exacerbated with other issues if the patients have inflammatory bowel disease or if they're taking a, a PPI or colchicine um, and they just remind us of the multiple presentations of B12 deficiency and the importance probably now of considering periodic monitoring of patients on metformin. And does that happen? I mean you've got somebody you've got patients who've been on metformin for years do you worry about their b12 levels do you prioritize them for um assessment b12 is such a can of worms and it's a can of worms for a number of reasons first of all because people can be b12 deficient without any symptoms you can get blood count changes obviously the classic um and macrocytosis, you can get neurological disturbances, you can get mental disturbances like cognitive impairments, you can get sort of mouth ulcers and glossitis, neuropathy. It's a really chameleon of a problem. And the tests we have in general, well, the blood tests in the labs, um, there's some concern that it's not particularly good at picking up the issue. So you can have, I, I gather um, from work done by Professor Smith in Oxford that patients with so-called normal levels of B12 around, I think it's anything below 220, a number of patients are still B12 deficient, uh, even when they have so-called normal B12 levels. So you've got all that going on. You've got labs telling us not to do B12 levels at the moment because they can't get various of the chemicals and uh, things they need for their machines. So we've actually been advised that we shouldn't be doing B12 levels. And then you've got this uh, saying, this sort of advice from drug safety saying, you know, if you're concerned or if patients have certain symptoms or if they don't have symptoms, but, you know, fit into various groups, please check their B12. The, one of the studies they quote is from the BMJ in 2010. And this was a study that um, was a placebo controlled trial on patients with non independent diabetes. And they followed them up for four years and 10% of the metformin group got B12 deficiency. And it was a proper B12 deficiency. We're talking about a level of, I think, less than 150, um, whatever the units are that have escaped me. I think it's probably micromoles. Is it picomoles? Picomoles. It's very small, isn't it? Yeah. Um, less than 150 picomoles per litre. Um, so it was a proper low level and 10% of patients on the metformin group after four years had B12 deficiency. Interestingly, 3% of the placebo group had B12 deficiency. 
Now, whether it was a funny group they were looking at, um, but that's, you know, our 3% of adult population out there, B12 deficient. Um, you know, that study would suggest that was the case. But the other, obviously other evidence as well they've quoted, but I think what it boils down to is we've got probably one in 10 patients taking metformin, possibly have B12 deficiency, and we just need to be aware of that. Um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? And of course, if they do have B12 deficiency, you then have this discussion about whether oral B12 is satisfactory or whether they need to have intramuscular B12. And if they're having intramuscular B12, that has significant impacts on capacity in general practice. It's another thing we have to do. Just another thing to think about, folks, when you're prescribing. And perhaps prioritise you know, if you've got people on long-term high doses and PPIs, maybe they're the ones to start start looking at first. But um, Exactly. Thank you very much. And, and then a quick look at a second of our select items. And this picks up on one of our regular issues. And I, I make no apology for us talking about it again. Um, we will keep talking about it until it's solved. And that's access to information on disclosures of interest. This is an overview. Um, do you want to say a bit more about it? Yeah, so this, is, this was a BMJ open paper that basically set out to look at all the European countries and what systems they have um, to disclose drug company payments to healthcare professionals. So they looked at about 37 countries, I think, and they just compared the various systems. They looked at how many had mandatory systems, you know, and the answer to that was none. Um, they looked at those countries that had just a self-regulated by the pharma industry system alone. And that was about 22. And that's, that includes the UK. And then they looked at some other countries have a sort of funny combination of both. And they just looked at how easy it was to access the information. Um, and it's quite depressing, I suppose, really, because we know how important this is. And Sydney Wolf's article that we published earlier in the year, looking at the mandatory system that the USA have, just detailed how important that is. And if you want to sort of revisit why it's important that we do know, you know, what money is flowing where to uh, healthcare professionals, Sydney Wolf's article will, will explain that very well. Um, and it feels like people are just ticking boxes to try and demonstrate that they're being good when actually it's really, you, you know, some countries you have to go to each drug company website to find their disclosure information. And very often it's on a PDF, which is such poor quality that you can't even use software to read the text in it. Um, it's very often none of it's downloadable. You know, it's just poor. And you feel that people are doing the very minimum to, to sort of be able to say, oh, yes, you know, we, we are all part of the disclosure. We all believe in transparency and then actually produce something which is remarkably opaque. And the other downside of it all seemed to be that, and I don't know whether it is over-interpretation of uh, European law, but the fact that all the schemes require consent of the recipients before the information can be disclosed. So everyone who's had a payment has to say, yes, I'm happy for my data to be included. So of course, if they don't say yes, then it doesn't doesn't get included. So you still don't know if you found everything when when you're looking. And I, and I suppose in the States, they must have solved it by um, legislation mandating it for everyone. So why can't we do that? Certainly in the UK now, 
It's a very funny world, isn't it, where you discover the USA seems to have a far more socialist piece of um, <laughs> uh, uh, national law than than good old liberal Europe. And I and you're right, it's it's a very odd system, and and we found that ourselves, haven't we? I mean, I I'm often looking at the Disclosure UK website, which is the ABPI's website, and actually, you know, the UK was felt to be one of the best industry led systems and certainly if you want to look at it you can go to disclosureuk.org.uk and you can click on healthcare professional and you can put in someone's name and it'll tell you how much they've been paid but it still requires the recipient to have given that permission so if you don't find anything it doesn't necessarily mean there isn't or there hasn't been a payment it's just that the person's just decided not to be transparent about it and and I certainly looking at some areas as well, I find that it's very difficult to get it all together because if you have um, some healthcare professionals who work for a healthcare organisation, you may find that the healthcare organisations had payments and they've had individual payments. And it's just very difficult because there's no mandatory requirement for it all to be there. You're left just wondering how much of this torn fabric is actually really showing me the whole picture and how much actually there's there's a far bigger thing going on which you're simply unaware of it's a start yes but i think it's really important that we get a hold of this particularly because of the changing in the landscape that's going on at the moment you know we're increasingly got some really significant people now who can really tilt the landscape enormously you know if you become a chair of a nice clinical guideline group or if you are someone who runs, let's say, I'm, I'm not thinking anyone personally here, but if you are someone who's a guru in HRT and, a, and a, a running a private clinic, which becomes very popular, you have enormous influence on what drugs are prescribed and what people think of certain elements to health. And it's really important we understand, you know, the implications of payments that you might be receiving, because however much you might say it doesn't influence you, Go and look at Sydney Wolf's article. You are influenced. It's just, unfortunately, if you don't know you're being influenced, it's just because you don't know you're being influenced. Absolutely. And I think that the point is well made both by Sydney and also, as we quote at the end of this select piece, that, that this is a means to an end. So getting declarations of disclosures is a starting point, but it's not the end point because um, ultimately, as somebody said, and we quote it in, in the piece, the ultimate solution is to eliminate all industry relationships from the practice of medicine. Um, this is a staging post on the way. It's not the final end point. Now, whether that is achievable is another question. But um, but yes, I'm sure we'll come back to this several more times before, um, before it's solved. It's one of our things. So uh, yes, is, absolutely. It it's very important. Very important. Okay, uh, and then finally, a very brief look at our main article. What's what's this one about? So this is about carbitocin, um, and it's an article looking at this synthetic analog of oxytocin and the management of postpartum hemorrhage. So it's a good old fashioned drug review. Um, carbitocin has been around since about two thousand and seven, I believe. It's licensed for the prevention of postpartum hemorrhage after cesarean sections and vaginal births. And the authors look at the evidence for it and look at the management of uh, postpartum hemorrhage, in particular, obviously, the active management of third um, stage of labour. And um, just question whether perhaps it belongs higher up the the sort of um, therapeutic armamentarium than it is currently. And 
as I can say, it's quite for us, it's not a new drug, um, but it's the fact that evidence for it has moved on since it was first launched. Yeah, so I think that the sort of background they give is if you look at the current guidance based on 2012 Cochrane reviews, and um, there's been some new evidence that Cochrane have looked at in, I think, 2018, in particularly a large study called the Champion Study. And um, so Cochrane have done a really big meta-analysis of what they call uterotonic agents, um, looked at about 200 studies, 136,000 women. And what they concluded was that carbatosin does have an important impact on reducing postpartum hemorrhage. They feel that for normal deliveries, um, every thousand times carbatosin is used, you probably prevent 34 postpartum hemorrhages and following caesareans it's about 169 uh, pph is reduced for every thousand times it's used so they think it's good there's obviously the issue around the fact that it's stable at room temperature and has a longer duration of action the big issue simply is it costs about 17 times what oxytocin costs and about um 10 times what ergometrin costs. So it's expensive. And as I say, the studies up until this, this new one didn't really look at it being any more advantageous than current treatment. So it's there. It's now on the WHO list of essential medicines. And um, it'll be interesting to see when NICE look at this again in 2023, whether there's any move on that. But it's a very comprehensive article. It's got all the evidence. Um, and for those interested in um, obstetrics, uh, it's a useful review. OK, thank you very much. Um, you can find uh, all these articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Uh, always happy to receive comments on our written content or even our spoken content. So please don't hesitate to uh, email us or let us know. Uh, you can contact us at dtp at bmj.com. Uh, many thanks for listening and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for a review of October's DTB. DTB.